Father, we come to your word and we pray that by your spirit you will make that word live to us so that when we thought about it and listened to it and began to obey it, we might know even more how great thou art. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it must be the summer season, I think. I'm not normally, when I do preach here, in the pulpit as early as this. And I have an inbuilt mechanism that goes on until quarter to eight. So I better be careful. I shall try to remember I started a bit earlier than usual. Please turn back to Psalm 75, where we are. I'm, I think, grateful to Paul uh, for asking me to preach on this psalm, since I have never, in all my many years of ministry, preached on it before. So I had no notes to fish out of the drawer. I had to start from scratch, and you are guinea pigs, as I preach for the first ever time from Psalm 75. Now, I'm a great lover of the Psalms. Uh, I, I sometimes miss the fact that we don't have Psalms in our service quite so much as we used to do. Here's the old boy speaking. Uh, I'm not at all sad that we don't chant them anymore. Do you remember the days of chanting Psalms? Uh, when I was a young curate in the Liverpool Diocese, we had to go once a month to Liverpool Cathedral and we had to learn elocution. We had to chant and we had to speak and the organist who had the delightful name of Mr. Goss Custard, what a nice name for an organist, Mr. Goss Custard, you stay up in his uh, loft and you'd walk up and down the cathedral and you'd chant. And there came the great moment when he leant over and said to me one day, Mr. Hacking, you did very well indeed. If you go on like that, you may one day become a precentor in a cathedral. To which I said quickly, forcibly, and somewhat irreverently, God forbid. <laughs> and he did, thankfully, and he did. <laughs> to those dizzy heights, I never rose. Well, so we don't have that in Psalms quite so much. And Psalm 75 is probably as uh, little known to you as it was known to me until a few days ago. So let's see what we learn from it. I'm intrigued just to begin with. Have you noticed who it's written to? It's written to Peter Turnbull. Did you realise that? Well, he does not mention it by name, but it's for the director of music. So the Peter Turnbull of every age is given a psalm. I'm even more intrigued by the title of the music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Now, you must have that's, that's an extraordinary name. I have an awful feeling I must do a PhD in it one day. It probably was an old document, and they put on the top, Do Not Destroy. It wasn't really the title, but somebody without much idea called it Do Not Destroy. Now, I can't prove that, and it's of no significance, but it's got you in good form, so there we are. But uh, that's the psalm. But actually... The intriguing thing about the psalm is that they speak to us in every age, whatever age we live in, uh, they speak to us there, timeless. We don't know when this psalm was written. It is quite possible that it was uh, written when the Assyrians were at the gates of Jerusalem. There are quite a few psalms written then, and they were tough days. They were crisis days. And it's true, we live in crisis days. When I started to prepare this sermon... A few days ago, a week or so ago, I started giving thought to it. I made some notes about the crises in the Middle East and all the terrible things happening in the Middle East countries. And that's still relevant. But, of course, we didn't, hadn't had the riots on our streets then. And somehow they have moved in. I'll bring it right home to us, the crisis days in which we live. And therefore this psalm does speak to us. 
One day standing at the door there, uh, a gentleman came to me. It was a Sunday after the Hillsborough disaster. And he said to me, rather piously, I thought, you know, Vicar, I know I don't come to church very often, but I do come when there's some crisis on in the world because I want to hear what you've got to say about it. And he repeated how many times he'd been on crisis days. So I said, as far as I'm concerned, there's a crisis in the world every Sunday. I look forward to seeing you every Sunday. But uh, I'm afraid that didn't happen. But it is, a, it is a, a message for every crisis day. And it's intriguing, isn't it? If you actually look at that psalm, it, in, when you get to, uh, after the little thanks at the beginning, you get to a word in verse 2, which is probably a word from the uh, prophet or the preacher, because he says, you say, I choose the appointed time. Now, who is it who says, you say, I choose the appointed time? Well, I think God says, I chose the appointed time. And here's the prophet reminding his congregation that uh, God is sovereign Lord. Oh, often in my ministerial days, I had people say to me, you don't have to go to church to be a good Christian, do you? And being sort of soft sometimes, I say, well, I suppose not. But really, I want to say, yes, you should be in church. You do need to go to church to be a good Christian. Oh, of course. There are people who can't get to church because they're ill. There are people who live in parts of the world where there's no church to attend. And it is possible not to beat your wife or to kick the dog and not come to church. I understand you can be a sort of that sort of Christian. But to be the genuine Christian, to be able to uh, learn more of Christ, to praise him worthily, I think we do need to come to church. I actually brought with me my 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which I was going to quote from, but I've left it down there, so you're safe. I'm not going to quote from it. But uh, there's a little bit, every Sunday we used to say, Dearly beloved brethren, the Scripture moveth us in sundry places. And we acknowledge them, we come together to listen to his word, to give thanks for all his good gifts, and so that's what we're here today. We're here today to be reminded of some great truth. This is a psalm of a great reversal. How God turns things upside down. It's the Old Testament equivalent of the Magnificat, which again, we used to sing regularly in church, my soul doth magnify the Lord. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. And so this psalm wants to remind us, and as we are reminded, we shall be all the better Christians for it. No, it's very possible to, of course, I hope you do, pray on your own at home. You can, I hope you do, read the Bible on your own at home. You can, if you wish, sing hymns on your own. And so long as you're tuneful, I hope you do. Uh, we can do all these things. But the very real sense in which we come here, God wants to speak into our situation with the people of God and give us something new to send away. This morning I was preaching at Tankersley and Thurgoland. I'm doing sort of going around the diocese when clergy are on holiday. Uh, and I was there this morning uh, and I enjoy preaching. It's always communion nowadays. And you get these strange requests over the telephone. Uh, can you come and take our service? If you, we have a lay reader and if you like he will preach for you. And I say, if I'm not going to preach, I'm not coming. So there you are. Uh, but of course what they really mean, only I could do the magic bits. Only I can do the sort of communion bit. I remember discussing that with a bishop and saying to the bishop, just seem odd to me. You have to have some skill to preach. You don't have to be too skillful to pour wine and break bread. Most people can manage to do that and yet somehow that's got to be the special one. I want to say until and unless we have the word in the centre 
It will degenerate into just mumbo-jumbo. And therefore we need that word central all the time. And as we come to this psalm, it keeps on reminding us there in verse 1. We give thanks for your name is near, which tells of your character. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. It's all about what God has done. Back at home, I have a, a document called Letters of Orders. It's very interesting. It's my uh, ordination document to prove that I'm a genuine, bona fide Anglican and that I was ordained in Liverpool Cathedral in some date in 1955. And attached to my document is the seal of the Diocese of Liverpool. It proves I'm a genuine person. Now, just suppose, just suppose, I lost the seal or I lost the document. Which matters more? I could easily, the seal could get detached from the document and the seal wouldn't prove anything. All it would prove is that I happen to have a seal, the Diocese of Liverpool. What is it going to do with me? But when I have a document, the document says it puts my name there and it tells you when it happened, that I am genuine. Now, of course, I could have typed it out myself. And that's why you need a seal as well, to give it a double power. What's that all about? Well, you see, the sacrament is like a seal. The communion service is there to say, yes, God's word is true. Jesus did die for you. But without the word at the heart, it can easily just degenerate. So I want to suggest to you today, please, as we come to this psalm, whenever it was written, whatever was happening, and there are crisis days around us today, I have three calls to you from this perennial psalm. Be thankful. Be careful. Be mindful. Straightforward. Be thankful. That's the verse 1 and the last two verses, which are the framework of thanksgiving. And it's, first of all, it's to be, it's to be a, a thanks and praise in spirit. Jesus said, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And you can have one without the other. There are some times when this congregation is full of truth, the preaching is correct, but there's no life there. There's some churches where there's plenty of life, but there's not much content. Plenty of heat, but not much light. And we need them both together. And would you notice, it's very important to me, verse 1, it's in the plural. We give thanks to you. Verse 9, it's in the singular. As for me, I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. We, I. Now, there are two dangers. One danger is the person whom I mentioned to already, who uh, doesn't think he needs church. He's all right. He can talk to God. Why bother coming uh, to church? I'm okay. On the other hand, there are people who just depend upon coming to church. No, I don't really pray and I don't have any relationship with God, but I do come to church on Sunday. I do mingle with them. And it ought to be true that my being part of the family of God and joining in thanks in spirit lifts me to live the rest of the week. I then can begin to sing my own praise in spirit, but also in truth. That's there. You see it's central in verse 1. The name of God, wonderful deeds. Or again it comes out in verse 9. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob with all its historical associations. So that even at communion service, every time we take communion, we go back to the upper room and the upper room takes us back to the cross. We hear of his wonderful deeds and therefore, it's not just feeling good. It's being reminded of what God has done. 
If we were going on in this series a bit longer, you'd come to Psalm 78, which I have preached on. And Psalm 78 has a remarkable reminder of how generations should do it. Let me just cite a few verses from Psalm 78. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, verse 3, we will not hide from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he's done. He decreed statutes for Jacob, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation will know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn will tell their children. You work out how many generations they are there now. Now I stand in front of as a great-grandfather, so I know how these generations can keep going on and on. I'm not quite sure what great-grandchildren call you when you're great-grand. Uh, somebody must tell me, but that's what we are, great-grands. But it's this idea of the generations to come and the desperate importance of making sure we do. Friends who are not young people here, the ones who aren't, do pray for the youth house party going off uh, this next week. Don't take for granted that there'll be dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them and they'll all be here next Sunday night and we shall just be rejoicing with all these young people. Desperately significant. And all too often missing in our churches. Generation after generation after generation. And when you've seen all the awful pictures of kids looting 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds with nothing better to do, how desperately important it is. I was going out this morning off to Tankersley and Thurgoland. Uh, my wife was listening to the radio service, which is very good this morning, I gather, and just heard the comment about the woman who said, I don't know what got into me when I went and started looting. I don't know what got into me. And how desperately important it is that we should know what does need to get into our young people, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, to transform and enable. And it's these truths that youngsters need to know. Do you realize just how desperate numbers attending our children's groups in the country as a whole? When I was a teenager, when I was a lad, virtually all my mates who weren't churchgoers went to Sunday school. Of course you did. That was it. Now, Sunday school numbers, or whatever you call them, are almost infinitesimal in most places. So it's absolutely vital that we put our all, a great deal of our effort into making sure that generations to come know the truth. So they can then respond to the truth. And for all of us who are no longer youngsters, how important that we set the example. I once had a phone call from a mother who said, would I please do something about her daughter? She was becoming fanatical. Oh, I said, what is the mark of your daughter becoming fanatical? She said, she's starting on a church twice on Sunday. Oh, I said, God, give us more fanatics. And that was the end of that conversation. Uh, what a strawny thing for a mother to say, twice on Sunday? I recollect when we were in Scotland, a Lord Provost of Aberdeen, that's a mayor in English terms, the Lord Mayor of Aberdeen, who was a very fine, practicing Presbyterian Christian, was slightly taunted by uh, the others and said, ha ha, you'll not be able to go to church now twice on Sunday. You'll be so busy, you won't have time to go to church twice on Sunday. Said he, I'll be so busy, I shall need to go to church twice on Sunday. That, I think, 
says a lot. Oh no, the Bible doesn't say you have to go to church twice on Sunday if anybody gets at me. It says seven times a day do I praise you. So there you are, you can improve it if you like. But it is a reminder to us that right at the very heart, if we want to be those who are truly grateful, thankful in spirit and in truth. Secondly, be thankful. Secondly, be careful. That's verses 2 to 5. Do you see the world in turmoil? Do you, do, you, do you see your age here in these verses? Look at the fear that comes out in, in verse uh, 3. When the earth and all its people quake. Wherever you look to the fear, you see, we've almost forgotten the drought in Africa, those pathetic pictures of kids at their mother's breast and there's nothing there. Because, you see, we got so busy with other problems. And the fear that is around in our society, uh, that must have been there if you had looters around, burning down buildings. It comes out in another uh, Psalms, in Psalm 11, where the, the psalmist in Psalm 11 says, when the foundations are being destroyed, and they are, what can the righteous do? Rhetorical question. The next verse gives the answer. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. That is, we are to recognize when the world's in turmoil, he's still there. He's not in turmoil. He's not lost control. But do you also see about not only fear, do you see the arrogance of verse 4? They're called arrogant. Boast no more. The wicked lifting up their horns, that is defiance against God. We live in a which does defy God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So many people defy him and one day, one day unless they repent, they'll get their comeuppance. They don't have the last word. And one day, the fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14, there is no God. The Lord looks down from heaven. You fool. One day you'll stand before me, you fool. And then you'll discover I am here. And it's all a bit too late. Now here's the, the tremendous reminder of these verses. That if in fact uh, in this termite world and this stiff-necked people, God is still on the throne. And uh, whatever's happening in the psalmist day, the Assyrians at the gate of Jerusalem still, God is sovereign. The world in turmoil. Secondly, a Lord in control. He is in charge. He's in charge of all that's happening. As you probably guess, uh, retired vicars come back when the staff are having a holiday. It's right and proper. They should have the holiday. And we're bringing the old boy to fill the pulpit. And the old boy is always delighted to be back in the pulpit. But uh, uh, one Christmas a few years ago, I was due to preach here on this pulpit on the First Sunday of the New Year, I got my sermon all prepared on Jeremiah 31, A New Covenant. And it was the year, you would remember it, it was the year of the tsunami. And on Boxing Day morning, I woke up in our daughter's home down south. And I listened to all the stuff about the tsunami and I said, I must start my sermon again. Everybody be thinking about these terrible events. So I turned back to Jeremiah 31. And I discovered in Jeremiah 31... It says about him that he makes the sea roar. Quite extraordinary. Jeremiah 31, 35. 
God stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. I didn't need to change my sermon. I've just got a new dimension to it. That in the end of the day, God is sovereign over these events in the natural world and the political world. Nothing is outside his control. Oh, it may pose intellectual problems to us sometimes. But what a difference it makes to be sure of it. Oh, please, if you doubt what I'm saying, will you actually think what it would mean if you thought God had gone to sleep? That what's happening in the world now, God doesn't want to know? And if he didn't want to know, he can't do anything about it. I'm so grateful that I know he is in heaven and he is watching over it. And the great events of the world are in his hand. It talks about the time, the appointed time. I choose the appointed time, verse 2. I judge uprightly. He is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. The Lord in control. Be thankful. Be careful. But let me find, and this is where we move into the New Testament, that reading we had in Mark particularly, but we're still here in the psalm. Be mindful, verses 6 to 8. Here's the response in verses 6 to 8 of the message of verses 2 to 5 of the Lordship of Christ. Do you remember the Old Testament passage that I always find very moving? I was called to the ministry on this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, which begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Extraordinary. The year that King Uzziah died, whatever date that was, B.C., doesn't matter, but a great king of Judah died. Isaiah was a young man who believed in him and suddenly, it wasn't just that Uzziah died. He died as a leper because he tried to usurp the priest's place and God had judged him. And the one Isaiah believed in and trusted had let him down. And in that year, I saw the Lord, not Isaiah, I saw beyond. You've been praying and I've been praying that God will somehow do something in our day to turn the tide in the desperate mess our nation is in. I trust you are praying. And these things give me confidence that when there's a turmoil around, God is sovereign and in the year that King Uzziah died, God was preparing his servant, Isaiah, who would point to Jesus. And what is God doing today? He is uh, preparing to do something very special. And so as I look at these verses 6 to 8, it gives me great encouragement. It's a reminder to get our perspective right. You see, when Herod and Pilate tried Jesus, they thought they were in charge. They were the arrogant people. They had all the power. And when you see Jesus standing in front of Herod and Pilate, who was judging whom? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. We say every time we go through the creed, his name is mentioned. His only place of fame is that one day he had the privilege of trying Jesus and his name is condemned for all time because he hadn't the courage of his conviction. And yet God, do you see it? God in his sovereignty used the weakness of that man as part of the purpose that led to the cross. God is sovereign. And so in verses 6 to 8, there are two words that really lift us to the New Testament. 
the crown and the cross. Neither are mentioned by name, but they're both there in verses 6 to 8. The crown is there. The God is sovereign. He is the one who judges, verse 7, he brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup, he pours it out, and the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Around this time of the year, I get, I get withdrawal symptoms because I've not been to Keswick. It's a kind of strange thing. I mean, I had 40 odd years of going to Keswick every year, sometimes for the whole lot when I was very busy. So I'm not there at all this year, but I, I sort of kind of go back in spirit. And I remember a most moving sermon preached at the Keswick Convention. Oh, incidentally, if you've never been to the Keswick Convention, this is my favourite line, you may get to heaven at the end of the day without having been to the Keswick Convention, but the pathway is all the better if you do go to the Keswick Convention, and I commend it warmly to you. And Don Carson, preaching at the Keswick Convention, made this extraordinary statement, but it's quite true, that when you get to the New Testament, all the promises of God get more and more wonderful. When you get to the New Testament, all the judgment and wrath of God gets more awesome. No, you don't move out of the Old Testament for judgment and into the New Testament with all mercy and love. You read Revelation 18 sometime, I haven't got time to quote it now, where it talks about Babylon having to drink to the very dregs the cup of God's wrath. It is worse than anything in the Old Testament. That's the book of the Revelation. That's the solemn reality. And God is on the throne and there is the awesomeness of the reality of judgment. He is in control. He is the God who judges. And he does have a cup of wrath. And he will have the last word. What is, what, when you ask for what should happen in our world, I was only tree by the parent of one of these Muslim lads who had been killed by that person in a car at Birmingham who just ran them down. He asked for justice and he was right to ask for justice in that case. Very right. Don't think any less of it. He didn't say, I forgive them all. He wanted justice because we live in a world where there needs to be justice. And there never will be final justice on that day, but there will be justice. Oh, take heart. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, the justice means he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you do not defy God and not pay at the end. End of Psalm 74, which you looked at last week. There's a, a cry to, to God to rise up and defend his cause, and he will, and he will. There is a cosmic crown, and he wears it. Ah, but... There's also the cross. There are two words here that sort of lift it up. And the one is that. Lift it up. Will you see that word lifted up? It comes. The horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Says verse 10b. Verse 7b. He exalts. And the same word is lifts it up. It's a word that's used in Isaiah. That God is high and exalted and lifted up. And do you see where that word gets you to? Jesus said that he would be lifted up and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. As, as the serpent was lifted, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
on a cross so that he might be lifted up in heaven. And I hope you noted when we read Mark chapter 10 that the theme of the cup comes out again. And when we read Mark chapter 10, that's why we're we're finishing as it were there. Mark chapter 10 is the promise that there will be uh, Christ will take the cup himself. He says in in, in Mark chapter 10 when he's talking to uh, James and John, can you drink the cup I drink? And they said, yes we can. Yes, okay, you will. And they did. James drank the cup. He was the first apostle to be martyred. John drank the cup. He went on living a long life but of sacrificial service. And if we follow the way of Jesus, there's a cup to drink. There are Christians who are dying for their faith as we sit in comfort here tonight. There are Christians who've lost home and family because they stand firm. Read the Barnabas Fund. Listen to what they've got to say as they try to help these people throughout the world. But the most important thing is that yes, there is a cup to be drunk, but Jesus drank it himself. If we run in Mark's Gospel in chapter 14, Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane and says to his father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came, verse 45, not to be served, but to serve and to give give his life a ransom for many. He drank the cup so that we don't have to drink it. And I find this very hard to say, but I will say it. He drank the cup so that some of the people whose actions and attitudes recently have been so awful, they're subhuman, But if they repent and turn, they too may not have to drink the final cup of his wrath. I find no joy in the thought that they will have to face his judgment one day. So I long that they might repent so that they won't have. And because Jesus drank the cup, we need not drink it. And every time as I presided twice this morning at communion to these two congregations... And I do enjoy just travelling around the diocese trying to help out in smaller causes. As I did, as I I took that service, it was a reminder to me that when we come to communion and we drink the cup of God's blessing, if we take the word into that service, then it can lift it so that as people take the bread and the wine, they are in their own hearts responding to the one who took the other cup. The real cup of God's wrath. On the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? And at that point he went to hell and drank the cup for me. No, I never became a pre-center. I became a sort of preacher. And that to me is rather more important. Uh, nothing against pre-centers. May they go on pre-centing. But it uh, seems to me it's not the most important thing in life preach the gospel is I finish on this relevant note two friends of mine have died in the last few days both of them one ten years older than me that's the dear John Stott one seventeen years older than me 
that our good friend James Atkinson lived at Hathersage, Professor James Atkinson, Professor of Biblical Studies in, the, in, in Sheffield. And I bring them together because they both say something very special to me, if I can convey it to you. John Stott, you, many of you may not know, a great preacher, rector of all sorts, Langham Place, where our good friend Hugh Palmer, who's my successor, is now the rector. John Stott, who has preached to more people than anybody else, I suppose, in Britain ever, written marvellous books, any book, John Stott, well worth getting, spend your time reading them. John Stott preached here one Sunday, and on the Monday morning I took him down to meet his friend James Atkinson, so the two came together. And as we sat in uh, James Atkinson's study, waiting for James to appear, uh, John, looking at all his books on the shelves, turned to me and said, Philip, don't you wish you had been an academic? To which my answer immediately was, no, not the slightest. Oh, I do, says John, I do, I do. It was a real sacrifice. But I always remember these words, I guess God had other things for me. Other things? Helped thousands of people to faith. Changed people's lives more than any archbishop's ever done. The kind of man who stands head and shoulders above so many other people in our age. John Stott, great man. And his job simply point to Jesus. And there's no greater joy than that. But you see, James Atkinson also had his place. James was a professor of biblical studies when biblical studies in Sheffield University was biblical studies. It, it's not that anymore. That's lost its heart altogether. When, he was a real, when it was a real thing, James Atkinson was expounding Romans. James Atkinson was, was a world expert on Martin Luther. And he once preached here. He did a special one, Martin Luther's 400th anniversary. And he, he almost preached like he was Luther himself. He became almost an embodiment of Luther. And he was, doing, it, he was uh, doing the Epistle of Romans. And a student said to James Atkinson, Sir, you give the impression you're trying to convert us. I am, said James Atkinson. Until you get converted, you'll never understand the letter to the Romans. Oh, and by the way, this is the bit where we come in. By the way, he said, this dates it. There's a young man up the road at Christ Church, Fullwood, who's preaching well. He'll come and help you to be converted. So this student arrived on Sunday evening and said, We've been sent by the I've been sent by the professor to get converted. It's rather nice. A great start to a conversation. And uh, we did our best. Whether he was, I can't remember. But I do remember that John Stott, James Atkinson, spent their lives, both very, very gifted people, and they subserved, put their gifts into the cause of pointing people to Jesus. And I can think of no greater privilege. And in a very real sense, when we, in that psalm, we haven't forgotten the psalm, but it's a reminder to us that we give thanks because his name of Saviour is even more near than it ever could have been in the days of Psalm 75. We know more than they could ever have known. I do hope we want to thank him for all he's done for us and it points us to the Lamb. And our director of music has chosen a very good hymn to end with, for he's pointing us to the Lamb, Jesus, the name, high over all. Behold, behold the Lamb. And I trust that as we sing this song, that we really believe it. A great hymn of Charles Wesley. Love it to have old and new in our song. Here's an old one that we should find great joy in. Let's stand and sing, Jesus, the name, high over all.